0: Good morning, Jan. How are you this morning? Very good. And we've got a full studio. It's exciting. Publicists and authors and even compares, so we better get underway.
1: Oh, I think so. I think so. Well, my book, The Honourable Thief, is a big book. Not just in pages, but in action and the topics it introduces. I can see it as a six-part TV series. <laughs> Welcome, Megan Wilson Anastasius. Is that what you've written it for?
2: <laughs> Look, it's it's never no. It was never the whether the intention I set out with, but I think probably because I write for TV, uh, inevitably it's going to kind of probably take a bit of that um, in form.
1: I th- well yes, you know you can say oh this is where that series that that. that <laughs> episode ends because there's such a surprise. In this book, The Honourable Thief, I've learned a lot about antiquities and how they are sold or protected. You know, if you've ever traveled through Europe, you would have seen a lot of ancient Egyptian statues. A hundred years ago, archaeologists would do a dig and then take things home. But your book is set in the nineteen fifties, and things have started to change. Yes, look, it's, uh, it was a matter of uh, national
2: pride. All of a sudden, uh, for for a while there, uh, the, most of those nations had no issue with with the big museums, collecting institutions of the world, taking their goodies, and so you have the the probably the fam- most famous example of the Elgin marbles mm. in the British Museum, uh, which Greece understandably would quite like to get back. Uh, and from Turkey, there's the Pergamon uh, treasure, which oh. is in Berlin. Uh, and so you have – in the Met Museum, you've got an entire Egyptian temple. So the idea was, you know, in the era before easy travel – you brought the culture to the people by stealing it from the country of origin and putting it in the local museum, so that Joe public could pop in and, and visit ancient Greece and Rome on their on the weekends.
1: But now you can't bring home these antiquities. No, you certainly can't. <laughs> but there's a black market for them.
2: There is. Uh, in fact, uh, oh. most recently we had ISIS in Syria. Uh, who, you know, their biggest money earner was selling oil. Uh, Their second biggest earner was uh, ripping antiquities out of the earth. They had looting gangs organised and they'd be ripping up antiquities and flogging them overseas. So the whole destruction of Palmyra was was really just for show. Uh, What they were really interested in was flogging uh, antiquities and making a lot... And the the mafia in Italy are involved in antiquities smuggling and
1: forgery. It's a big business. Now, the... the Isis and the mafia don't make it into the book.
2: <laughs> no they don't. <laughs> but there's no. so much. It. But
1: what about a, repu- a reputable auction houses? You know, would they know the difference between a, a real one
2: or a fake one? Look, a, a lot of a lot of experts don't can't tell the difference between a real one and a fake one uh, because the techniques Uh, studied so closely by the Mm. the best forgers and and I've got a forger character in the book, an Italian forger. And the psychology of forgers is really interesting because they actually just like to get one over people. They like to be the smartest person in the room. And uh, so it does make it very difficult to identify fakes and forgeries, but they're prevalent. They're everywhere.
1: So everything has a buyer. And at the end of the book, the buyer and the reason for the purchase absolutely amaze me. <laughs> We're not going there, but oh that's whatever. Ah so from antiquities to myths and legends. Very, very briefly, Achilles. Look, Achilles
2: uh, Achilles in the Iliad fa- has always fascinated me because he's 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 basically having a tantrum for a fair a fair whack of the book. Uh, and my hero is also slight, you know starts as an antihero and just as Achilles in the book, in in the Iliad, uh, he's he's not his his sort of petulant behaviour is not particularly admirable, and so for me there's a parallel between my hero Benedict mm. Hitchens and Achilles, uh, and Achilles is a very human hero, just as the Greek gods are very human gods. They're, they're vindictive, they're nasty, they're vicious. They have hissy fits when they, things don't go their way, and so Achilles uh, for me was a very human character, so hence in the, in the book the Benedict's quest to try and prove Achilles is a real person.
1: Benedict Hendricks, yeah, <laughs> archaeologist. So what does he want to find?
2: he wants to find proof that achilles was a real person he wants to find proof that the heroes of the iliad that greek heroes were were real historical figures uh, just as you know those who believe jesus was the son of god you know there are those of us including myself who sworn agnostic that Jesus was probably a human being and a, and a very possibly a very good human being. So the the argument is well if that's the case why can't we accept that the heroes of the Iliad were also human beings that got you know A lot of marketing around them, branding.
1: So Ben, the archaeologist, really wants to get hold of the shield. And there's the legend holds that no one who carries it into battle can be felled by mortal means. So there's a lot of people who want the shield too. So this is an action story. We don't know the goodies from the baddies, and they're all following his trail through what was Asia Minor. What do we call that area now? Well, it's it's Turkey.
2: Uh, A lot of Greek people who... Uh, not particularly happy that Turkey is ruled by Turks now rather than the Greeks. Still refer to Turkey as Asia Minor. Uh, in fact, mm. when you're in uh, on a lot of the Greek islands, you see reference to oh yes, across there you can see the village that my grandparents came from. Asia in Asia Minor. They they weren't actually utter the word Turkey. So Asia Minor is the traditional uh, uh, Ro- uh, Roman Latin. Way of referring you know, to, but this is
1: this is a fact from the book, and I was I thought it was fascinating. Uh, in 1923, over a million mm. Christian Ottomans were forcibly expelled from Turkey and relocated to Greece. And on the other side, half a million Muslims who had been living in mm. Greece for generations were exiled to Turkey. Yeah, it was So you can horrific. understand why there's so yeah. much of it. So, but Ben, our, our anti-hero perhaps, is very comfortable in... All these cultures. He speaks the languages and has a good friend in Ilhan. <laughs> who's he? Ilhan
2: is a uh, love, a lovable rogue, I suppose which is the best way of describing him. Uh, he's a antiquities dealer and a trader in the in the Grand Bazaar, uh, who's definitely not above uh, selling. Antiquities that have been illegally acquired and also forgeries mm. so he 's the one he's, he's ben's helping him in his um, nefarious pursuits uh, when we first meet him and uh, yeah so it's sort of it 's a complex relationship between the two of them but uh, yes
1: <laughs> yeah. Ben is a handsome man and often has Dig romances.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, dig romances. They're only meant to actually last uh, the extent of the dig. In my particular instance, I'm, I married my dig romance. Uh, oh, we're still life. delightfully married, yes. So, um, yes, they can. They do sometimes develop into something
1: else. <laughs> and one of those dig romances was Ada, the English photographer. But who is it that wins uh, Ben's heart and he marries? Uh,
2: a woman called Karina, who's a... a Cretan woman. Unfortunately, Cretan just doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it it doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. A woman from Crete uh, that Ben meets prior to the uh, to the outbreak of se- the Second World War. Yeah. Just before,
1: 1944. And on this island, there's also a Frenchman. And we're going to hear Megan Wilson and, and Anastasius read from The Honourable Thief about a character called Monsieur Joseph Garve. Yes,
2: yeah, so Garvey's face was wide and bland, its features fleshy and indistinct, with the contours of what might once have been a potent jawline disarmed by a soft julep beneath his chin. In contrast, his lips were so thin that his mouth seemed like little more than a slash cut into a badly
1: risen lump of raw dough. Yeah, I don't think we like not him. A, he's
2: not a nice man, is no, he?
1: No, Well, as we say, um, if anybody knows their World War II history, you know what happened on, with the German invasion of mm. Crete. So uh, there's tragedy there. And years after, there is another woman, Eris Patris. And Ben is thinking, oh, new country, new woman, new job, but not so. What happened to
2: Eris Well, we find out what happened to Eris, but Eris, Eris was there seemed to offer him his his opportunity oh. to, to find redemption, yeah. uh, but she disappeared and it appeared as though she 'd been kidnapped, something terrible had happened to her, and so his, his, the second half of the book about is in part his pursuit of uh, her and finding out what happened to her, but also the treasure that she, that she was associated with that seemed to prove what he wanted to
1: prove. <sighs> After the chaotic nature of Turkey and Greece, the chase continues to England. And another little paragraph from um, Megan Wilson-Anastasius about London.
2: He slumped on the rear bench seat of a cab as the city's streetscapes flickered by like a stand of living postcards. The cab drew to a halt at an intersection and neatly dressed and composed pedestrians filed obediently through the crossing like lines of well-outfitted ants. Serried ropes, rows of black cabs and lolly red double-decker buses moved sedately and politely along well-defined lines, lanes of traffic with nary a horse cart or street vendor mm. to be seen. Even the dogs were clipped into unnatural forms. Nothing in London was left
1: to chance. Look, it, yeah, it, it's just such a contrast. <laughs> and then we get into Sotheby's, the auction sale rooms, and... This is fascinating. It's the inside <laughs> story of you know just how auctioneers perhaps might rig things like bidding, um, bidding off the chandeliers, and even bidding rings. And then there's the manipulation of buyers. Yeah, Rembrandt's etching that' a yeah, true ma-
2: story. <laughs> it's because uh, I worked in, I ran an art auction house, and so I know exactly what goes on in in the auction rooms. And so it's yes, it's not. It it is very real. The uh, it's a open slather, what goes on, there. it's unregulated. So you have to be very careful when you're buying at auction.
1: Now, Sotheby's, yeah. does it really have the statue over the front yes, of it does. of Our Lady of Slaughter? It certainly does.
2: <laughs> Isn't it extraordinary? <laughs> Someone bought it in the, uh, I think the early 18th century, early 19th century, sorry. And uh, and then re- didn't pick it up and pay for it, so Sotheby's kept it and put it above the door.
1: <laughs> and um, our character here, Ben, quite likes that because yeah. she, what was she, the goddess of?
2: She was the goddess of many things, but one of her festivals, which I rather like the sound of, was that you're, you're obliged to get blindingly drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure why, but you know, that's my kind of goddess.
1: <laughs> well, this is Ben spends three, nearly three years trying to find. Eris, and he spends a lot of that time blindly drunk too. You know? Yes, yes. He's, you know, he's
2: traumatised. He's, he's, he's a shattered man.
1: Yeah, by losing Eris, he's also lost all his reputation as a top-notch, you know, archaeologist. Yeah. Who, um, uh, anyway, when he's finally reunited with Eris, these are some of the quotes. She had slit him open and scooped out the remnants of his soul. And another, finding her dead would have been preferable. Oh, so <laughs> you'll have to read the story to find just what's going on. Look, um, Megan, you, you've had a background in academia and you can tell through this book that you really know what you're writing about. <laughs> oh, thank you, I'm glad. <laughs> but there's another quote that, from you. There is no room for embellishment and tall tales in the hallowed halls of academics mm. and... Where's the fun in that? That's
2: yes, it's absolutely it's absolutely true. I, I academic writing just about kills me. <laughs> I, I write in across many different spectrums. I've, I've written popular press and all sorts. You know, as I say, film, uh, TV scripts, but writing at that sort of really regimented, uh, clinical approach to writing, oh, just. <laughs> It really destroys me. I really admire people who can do it and do it well and do it all the time. I can't. Can't stand it.
1: Going from academia to <coughs> scripts. incredible. Incredible. Okay, The Honourable Thief is an action packed tale of honour, <clears throat> passion, heroes, and thieves by Megan Wilson Anastasius. Well, thank you, Jan.
0: Have you heard of the song I Love Paris? I, I love, love Paris, Paris in the, the springtime. Spring I love Paris in the fall. I'm I'm off to Paris, and I, my book today is A Letter from Paris by Louisa Deasy. So, Louisa, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, it's good I mean,
3: to be here. When we
0: talk about Paris and journeying to Paris, we often think of love, romance, rejuvenation, etc. And your, your memoir is a sort of twist on that, because we've got family history, inheritance, uh, the love life of an artist... Uh, which is a, an interesting combination uh, yeah. when it's all said and done because this um, – let's begin with the letter that starts this all off. Okay. You received a letter from Paris.
3: <clears throat> yeah, and that's that's where the, the book gets its title. Um, so a, a woman contacted me completely out of the blue about two and a half years ago um, about a stack of letters that her gran- grandmother had written to her parents in 1949 – that mentioned a man named Denison DC, and they were in Paris and I was in Melbourne and I, I was a little bit shocked <laughs> to receive this message. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so it turned out that her grandmother had died the day before, which again was astounding that they'd contacted me so soon. Um, and it was all, the letters were all about this affair she had had with my father in 1949 in London after the war. And I never knew my father.
0: Well, this is the interesting connection here because it sets you off on a search for your father. And this is where the sort of romance comes in because you're sort of falling in love with Paris, falling in love with your father, whom uh, he died when you were six.
3: Yeah. And yep, also right.
0: your parents had separated mm, when you yep. were only a baby in Six arms. months Six old. months. Yeah. So you're really... Off on this journey to find your father. Yeah, which leads to the question: Who was Denison Deasy?
3: <laughs> well, that was my that was that was the question that started the whole the whole journey. And it was this family in Paris had this question, and they transferred it to me. And I had just given up on ever answering that question. I I never knew anything about Dad. You know, his contemporaries had all died. My dad was born in 1920, so. Well, let's go
0: into a few of his contemporaries. Tucker, Boy, Dutton, tell us more. Yeah.
3: Well, I didn't know that they were his contemporaries until I started the research that became this book um, because, as as I said, I, there was sort of a silence around my father as I was growing up um, because his. His parents and most of his siblings had passed away. Um, My mum didn't talk about him because there was a lot of pain there. Um, You know, she'd separated from him not knowing that he had cancer and then he died very suddenly. So I think there was a lot of guilt. So I never asked her about him. But I I never got the sense that they had a romance or any happy times um, because I was never told about them. So I I just sort of had this, this vision of my dad as sort of this failed... Old, sick, down on his luck man.
0: But he gave was it Tucker money to go overseas.
3: Yeah, he had. He played a huge part in a lot of these modern artists' um, development and lives. Um, he gave Tucker the fare, or helped him have the full fare to go to London uh, when the whole um, furor had happened with Sweeney and all of that. Um, he also supported Arthur Boyd a lot in his early years, bought, bought lots of his early paintings, you know, when they were teenagers. Um, he also gave another poet, the fair to England, Alistair Kershaw. Um, and he just threw, I think he just threw his money around a lot at these artists. But Denison is
0: therefore an integral part of Australia's cultural fabric (laughs) in that regard.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I've sort of come to see that. I, I just never knew that. And
0: um, his contribution then to the world of letters?
3: Well, when after I received the message from Paris, I went to the library, the State Library of Victoria, um, because I wanted to see if there was anything about Michelle. That was the grandmother at the library. Um, and I knew that some of his diaries were there and I thought that was because he had been friends with Arthur Boyd. I knew that he and Arthur Boyd had been friends. That's all I knew. Um, but when I got there, I found... Hundreds of manuscripts, thousands of letters, photos. There were 40 photos from the 1940s and 50s.
0: And his diaries. Here's an extract London, 1949. Afternoon at the National Gallery among the Italian paintings. Returned by tube to Regent's Park, ascended into light and walked up the horrible Albany Road towards the butcher's for my microscopic ration. Two chops for the week fit in my pocket. Hearty, heavy from the change from the gallery. I spy a small small boy clutching a bottle of milk, toddling towards me. I was astonished to see that he was approaching me and saying something. What is it, me lad, I says. With a confident, doleful note, he says, lead me across the road, please, mister. Feeling vastly flattered at being mistaken for a confident crosser of London death roads, I drop a line for him to take a hold of and a small, grubby fist clutches it. Gravely, we traverse the road and part as do the oldest of mates without a word. What a thrill is the slightest touch of humanity.
3: It's it's really beautiful to hear Dad's writing being read by a man. It's really nice.
0: Again, well, I mean, you're tearing up at the moment, but there is a sort of, um, well, humanity's not quite the right word I'm looking for to his writing.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that part, that was just from his diary, he wrote that for no one to read but himself, you know.
0: But there's the Australian-isms. <laughs> yeah. I, what is it, me lad? I says. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then I, I drop my, what
3: was it? I um, drop a line. I drop
0: a line. Which, I know. I his hand.
3: It's so visual. Yeah. But yeah. there's
0: that, that sort of Australian idiom, but yeah. also then that that really, the, the pathos and such like of, of that yeah. waif.
3: And, yeah, and such it's like. Just this little boy trusting him going lead me across yeah. the road please mister. But he's right when <laughs> when you t-
0: when you go into because you've you've included extracts from his yeah. diaries and journals. Yeah. And there are some that are very very powerful in that oh. regard. Uh etc. So this leads you into a whole other world in many ways of what London was like back then. But yeah. It, but also then Paris because Spent time in Paris.
3: Yeah, and that was sort of a very poetic part of the whole journey. Was I, even though there's so. Much, and he met Michelle in London, and there's so much about London after the war because that, he went there in 1947. Um, the really powerful thing for me was that Paris and France, particularly, was his his haven, and his he, he had a love affair with France as well as people. Well, there, he also
0: had another love affair, Giselle.
3: Yes. <laughs> It's a very complicated story when you <laughs> say it like that. Yes, so Giselle was my godmother, and she, um, yeah, they had been married for a very long time. They'd met in the forties or fifties at at one of David Boyd's first pottery shows in London. Apparently, um, I'm not too sure how much you'd like me to say there, but but there's well, a how lot much of, do
0: you want to give away? A because lot of of love we we there. we sort of have. Uh, a discovery taking place, and in many ways it's for the reader to find out what you eventually found out. So how much can you tell us about (laughs) yourself?
3: Well, I think what I have recovered through the process of writing this book and learning about Dad and the world of London and Paris after the war and his life is that there was so much romance there. So this was something I never saw with... With Dad and Mum because, you know, they'd separated when I was six months old and I, I never knew that Dad had a happy life and, you know, there's so much romance and well, it's all in France and it's just really it's, beautiful. It's
0: also the artist's life, which is an, an interesting parallel here because there are letters. Now, he worked for Aldington who wrote a book on yep. Lawrence of Arabia, etc. And there's Aldington. There's 300 or so letters from Aldington to Dad. Yeah. chronicling or chronicled the highs and lows of the writing life in the 1940s and 50s. So yeah. there's Aldington trying to encourage your father to continue writing, continue the yeah. writing lifestyle, but it then parallels with your own life because yeah. you have people in trying to encourage you yeah. to continue your writing, yeah. are you seeing a parallel then with your Absolutely.
3: father? Absolutely, and I, and I sort of felt this kinship and, and I saw all of these parallels in our writing journey. I mean, I never even knew Dad was a, such a published writer before I went to the library and um, Oldington Old, was his mentor and, and I've found similar mentors in, in my life and they've always come in really unexpected ways um, and so when I was reading those 300 or so letters, I... I I was just really struck by how similar, even you know, 50 or 60 years later, the advice to a writer is. Mm.
0: But there's that role your father's taking of a researcher for Aldington so he mm. can complete his book. There's a letter from D.H. Lawrence in all yeah. that and things like that. But here's the other curious thing, because um, the writing um, your father does is not just creative. There's a book he wrote. Education under six. Yeah. So he's, a, he's an academic as
3: well. Yeah, he was, he was really interested in history and France and education. So he, he'd worked as a teacher and he was really interested in different education theories. So he'd, he'd written this book in the 1970s. And that was the only book I knew of before, before I started researching him. And I thought, oh, it was academic and it didn't sell very many. And yeah, I didn't know much else because no one had ever mentioned it to me. Have you read the book? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, right. It's lovely. It's it's all about how the French um, are really focused on play and how play really helps you to learn as as an under six-year-old and how it shouldn't be so regimented.
0: Well, that's that's well before its time in that regard yeah. because the psychologist eventually came up or advocated that years later. Yeah. But back to your uh, memoir, then, there are several sort of threads compelling the narrative here. I mean... You mentioned that your father lost three fortunes. Now yeah. you can't tell us because we've got to read for yeah. ourselves. But what's going on there?
3: Well, that was a story that had sort of uh, worked like a Chinese whisper in the background of my childhood brain for most of my, uh, you know, growing up. I just heard in the background, he squandered fortunes. He, you know, he was a failure. He never really did anything with his writing and it was quite it, it's quite hurtful you know to have these stories about your father just brewing away and it was part of the reason I never looked into his material at the state library
0: then there's the thread of Giselle and Michelle mm-hmm. and finding out who they are
3: yeah that that was pretty magical actually learning more about those uh, those two
0: you've also then look at your own relationship with your parents and your mother Which is interesting because it sort of changes or transforms the narrative in in that regard in terms of your own perception of your parents and such like.
3: Well, I think it's impossible to write about one parent without writing about the other, you know, and if you're going to change your perceptions, which I completely did about dad through the course of writing this book, um, I I had to reassess everything that I'd sort of understood about mum and their relationship and...
0: But you touch on the fact that, in many ways, your mother was an artist.
3: Yeah, as, she as well. was. She was a painter and a sculptor.
0: But what did she do with her work? Can you tell us that?
3: Um, she she didn't sign much of her work. And at the end of her life, she we found that she'd thrown a lot of it out on the street. Which, which again, upsetting.
0: speaks to the life of an artist mm. and whether one continues the struggle or... Mm gives up or finds other avenues to pursue.
3: Yeah, and it's that whole thing of value, you know. And that was, for me, most of the inner journey of this book was learning about what is of value. Is it Does it matter if someone recognises something as valuable or is it about how you see it? And that was kind of how I formed a very close – I feel like even though Dad's not alive, I formed a very close relationship with him through the course of this book because we both share this sense of value of of creative work. And I never, I never knew that he did so much before. But
0: then as a creative person yourself, um, did it reinvigorate your – Um, sort of desire to continue with the craft, given that it's such a precarious existence?
3: Yeah, yeah, it did, actually, Um, because I see how valuable his work is and you know, published or not, whatever the... That's the
0: name of a great program, by the way, <laughs> published or not. Sorry, I've interrupted.
3: Even the diary entries, you know, yeah. that he wrote for no one but, but himself, they're, they're so precious to me and they're so valuable historically.
0: Well, that's it. They're valuable historically and yeah. the State Library also encourage people to see if that can be utilised, those yeah. resources yeah. can be you reutilised. But there are boxes of them. How many boxes?
3: Um, I'm not sure of the number, but they stack higher to 1.6 meters. Oh, <laughs> 1.6 meters, <laughs> which was his height, I think. Oh. Or no, he was like six foot something. I don't know. Um, I can't transfer. But there are but,
0: unfinished manuscripts there and all yeah, sorts of things.
3: Radio plays. Um, I uh, I'm. St- it's. It's such a massive amount of material. It took me a year to kind of get my head around what was in there. But um, yeah, radio plays, poetry, un- unpublished and published. Manuscripts, short stories, essays and plays.
0: So the uh, memoir is a letter from Paris. The uh, author, Louisa Deasy, a daughter of Denison Deasy, who I knew little about uh no i didn't know him uh (laughs) i knew very little about but you've got then a a glossary in the back of all the artists he was associated with yeah and it's
1: released by scribe publication and i was speaking with megan wilson anastasius about her book the honorable thief that was uh through pan Macmillan. so next week david
3: more authors more
0: authors more fun